Thank you, Laura. I, I just love it when you read. Thank you so much for making the scriptures come alive for us this morning. Uh, and I apologize. She has said knee surgery, and I made her stand up here and read that <laughs> long passage. But it had to be the whole thing. You had to hear the whole, the whole story, don't you? Uh, we are going to pray, and I'm going to ask Scott if he'll come up and lead us in some prayer. Uh, there's some special needs that I think need to be mentioned. Hello. Um, for those of you who have been here a long time, you probably remember Larry and Christine Braniff. They used to be part of our fellowship. Um, they've lived in Idaho for the last several years. But uh, Christine had a aneurysm a few days ago, and uh, they've kept her alive on life support. And uh, they're going to disconnect that today. She may be graduating into heaven as we speak. Uh, she is a she was a believer. She she knew the Lord, and. Uh, so I just want to offer a prayer, though, for the family. There, there's several among us. Corey, work, Corey Braniff uh, works with me at Rosars, and Jim Braniff was a former student of mine, and I've hunted with Larry, and several of us know them pretty well. But let's, let's pray for the family right now. Lord, we just offer a simple prayer that that. We thank you, first of all, for what you did at the cross that allows us to enter into your realm of heaven. And, and, and we praise you for Christine's graduation to heaven, but it's still tough, Lord. We who love those who go on miss them. It's, it's very painful to see them pass away. And so we pray for strength and comfort to Larry, her husband, and, and the whole family, Lord, and all the friends. Just bless them with your presence in a strong way. And uh, we commit her to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Scott. <clears throat> and thanks to the worship team again for just leading us just Beautiful, those last two hymns. How many of you know the hymn? Uh, I can't help but start sing, keep from singing. That uh, That's just one of those great Baptist hymns. Those last two hymns just brought back such memories of my grandparents, of sitting in my, my grandparents' Baptist church and then my, my other grandfather's Methodist church. Both those hymns just bring back such memories. Uh, so, and um, a couple of new faces up here. I want to thank Jill and Kevin for coming and helping us there. You're just a real blessing for us. Take the initiative to get to know them. Great folks. I spent some time with Kevin, and, and I think you will enjoy getting to know them. Uh, and I look forward to getting to know you guys better as well. So, But thanks for helping us out here so well. Um, we are going to be looking at, um, at John chapter 4. Like uh, Laurel said, a well, well-known story. Uh, very, very well-known story. Uh, in my opinion, uh, I don't know how many John Prine fans we have here. I know Kevin Kingray and I are big John Prine fans. Uh, I think he's probably perhaps one of the greatest, uh, at least country, songwriters that America has produced. 
and uh, he, he uh, started writing music back in the 70s, and he would write uh, on his mail route. He was a mail deliverer, and uh, he would write on the route. He would have these ideas in his head, and he said that his mail route was like a library without books, and he was just had all these ideas coming in, and he would write them down, and he and his buddy would record them in his apartment, and uh, he wrote a lot of songs about old folks, and <laughs> so uh, he, uh, maybe that's why I like him, but uh, he... Uh, he wanted to, this friend said, you need to write another song about some old folks. And he goes, no, 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 I, I want to do something else. And it occurred to him on this ma mail route that he should write a song about a woman that he knew, or a woman who was middle-aged, but really felt a lot older than she was. And uh, some woman from uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, he has her pictured in his mind, washing dishes over a sink with soap on her hands and and kind of daydreaming through the years, and she remembers how she once had a cowboy, or at least she remembers she, you know, how well she did, actually did have a cowboy. It's kind of, kind of fuzzy, but, um, but in her mind, that's how she remembers it. And she just keeps thinking about how the, life, the years have flown by, and I just want to uh, read this. I'm not gonna sing it to you, I'll read it to you. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite songs. I've, I first heard it in, in the 70s, in the mid-70s, and it, I was a fan of this song from then on. Uh, called An Angel from Montgomery. And I'm going to read it as he wrote it, exactly as he wrote it. In other words, there is a mild cuss word in it, so get over it, okay? <laughs> I am an old woman named after my mother. My old man is another child who's grown old. If dreams were thunder and lightning was desire, this house would have burned down a long time ago. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to. To believe in this living is just a hard way to go. When I was a young girl, I had me a cowboy. He wasn't much to look at, just a free rambling man. That was a long time, and no matter how I tried, those years just flown by like a broken down dam. And there's flies in the kitchen, I can hear them buzzing, and I ain't done nothing since I woke up today. How the hell can a person go to work in the morning, come home in the evening, and have nothing to say? Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to, to believe in this living is just a hard way to go. I have probably heard the story of the Samaritan woman, or read it, probably a hundred times. Maybe more than that. I don't know. But this week, when, we were, when I was uh, planning on preaching on this passage this week about, the, uh, about spirituality and reading the story of the, of the Samaritan woman, John Prine's Angel from Montgomery came to my mind. And I kept in my mind picturing this middle-aged woman who felt a lot older than she was and coming to the well. And I think this, this is where uh, I want to pick up here today. I think this is why... Jesus, this story with, with this woman hits me so well. Uh, we have been talking about these seven universal values identified by N.T. Wright as sort of these transcendent values, these things that are part of every human being that seem to transcend borders, languages, history, cultures, that we all have them and we all look to them. And N.T. And Wright argues that these seven things point us to something greater, something bigger, something out there than ourselves, and a part of every human being. Of course, we would say, and N.T. Wright would say, these things point to God. 
but they also point to us because they are also, also, oh, they're also broken because we cannot seem to get it right. We say justice is important, but uh, when it's us on, on, in the court scene, we don't want justice, we want mercy. Uh, and the human and all nations, they say they want justice, except when our national interest is at stake, and then maybe not so much. Uh, we say love is super important, and yet we continue to get it wrong. We continue to sabotage our relationships, even those that are more dear to us and that have sometimes lifetime consequences. And the same is true for spirituality. We're known as spirituality. We introduced that last, last Sunday on the 4th when we had the evening service, but I wanted to explore it a little bit more, and believe me, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg on these topics, but I did want to touch uh, spirituality before, uh, before we go on again. Um, I believe that, that, that Christianity uniquely speaks to spirituality. It uniquely speaks to our broken spirituality because Christ uniquely speaks to our broken spirit. And I think what John is getting at throughout the book, and in, in this story in particular, is that, that this need to know and this need to be known at the deepest level is finally fulfilled finally fulfilled in Christ. And so that's where we're, we're headed uh, this morning with the story of the Samaritan woman. And uh, we see a bunch of surprises in this story. Uh, last week I mentioned that, that um, we basically have the same choice when it comes to spirituality. It's the same idea that everyone has, that there is something out there, something different, and uh, spirituality is somehow connecting maybe the visible with the invisible or the, the material with the spiritual or the, or the esoteric with the concrete or something like that. The Bible uses the words heaven and earth. That somehow these physical and spiritual things meet and that's our spirituality. And Christian spirituality is unique. It uniquely speaks to our broken spirituality because Christ uniquely speaks to our broken spirit. And we basically, in our world today, we basically have the same choices that our ancestors did thousands and thousands of years ago. People will think that there's God or God's out there somewhere, but basically they're uninvolved, they're just distant, and we're just kind of left on our own. That's Epicureanism. It's no different. Or we believe that, uh, people believe that the spirits are here, though God's here, but everything has been ordained, everything has been planned out, and everything that happens has been, has been pre-programmed to happen, and we just have to get through it and not be too, too attached to anything that's stoicism. Or we can say that we're just in this, this earthly world here is not the real reality, that there is a more real, real realm out there, a spirit realm, and uh, that our job is to kind of hang on here in this shadow reality until we go to the real reality, which is the spirit reality. That's Platonism. That's Plato. Or there are people who say, well, the earth is, the earth is, is God itself. The earth is full of forces or, or spirits, and every living thing has its, its own spirit in it. That's classic paganism. But the Jews had a different, different view. They viewed that there was one God, one true God, who was different apart from the creation, but at the same time deeply involved in creation and wanting to be involved in creation. That, was, that made Judaism much, much different, that God wanted to dwell with his people. And so they had a temple, a temple that they, there was a tabernacle that they built when they came out of Egypt and uh, warmed in the desert. Well, they built this temple with the inner sanctum, and then later uh, Solomon built a big temple, which was destroyed, but then it was rebuilt with Ezra and Nehemiah, and then, then renovated by Herod the Great, Herod, King Herod. 
But the point is that this is where God manifested his presence. This is where earth and heaven met in the holy sanctum, in the holy of holies. And, and one priest would go in once a year to atone for the accumulated sins of the year called the Day of Atonement. And this was where God dwelled. He wanted to dwell here. And, and, and it's, not, it's kind of a dangerous proposition because uh, Isaiah was in the, in the temple and he had this vision of God and he was sure that this was his last, this was his last moment, that he, it was his last breath. But of course it wasn't. So this is the center. We would call this the central of Israelite spirituality, although I doubt they would phrase it that way. But it was all centered on this. But then there became another important object after the Babylonian captivity, and they were dispersed, and that was the Torah. That was the law of God. It was the code of law. It was uh, instructions. It was a story of their origins. And uh, they began to substitute, or not substitute, but, uh, but assimilate the Torah into their spirituality. That if you were living apart from Jerusalem, you could still carry the Torah in your heart and your mind and still worship like those lucky people who lived in Jerusalem and worship in the temple. And it was their job. They, they thought if you carried the Torah in your mind and your heart, you could also worship. And Psalm 19 kind of describes this. It describes this creation about the sun and how wonderful the sun works on the earth. But then he goes on to say, this is how the Torah works in the lives of people that it, 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 uh, it attacks or it, it, it uh, approaches and, and, and determines every aspect of the human life. That every little thing, in fact, it was almost a, a game that the scribes would play that if there was something to come up with a, a situation that the Torah didn't, didn't exactly address, well, they would move around and find out a way to where it would address exactly your situation, your problem. And so when we think about New Testament uh, religion, and when Jesus was, uh, was in his public ministry, we kind of think Judaism was this incredibly legalistic system. But really, all they were doing was trying to apply Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, that the, that the Torah affected every single aspect of their life. Well, Jesus comes along and says there's something new, something fresh. This is something different in the mindset. That this Psalm 19 was true, but what the point of Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 is that God doesn't want just to dwell in the midst of his people. He wants to dwell in his people. He wants to dwell within each one of us. He wants his wisdom, his life, his breath, his joy, his love to indwell in every single person. It's not just in the midst, in us. And Jesus comes along with that message, and I think that's one of the main messages of the Gospel of John, is that this is a new thing that he is doing. This is a new creation. This is a new intimacy, a new spirituality. So when John begins his book, we all know about the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and, and uh, well, the Word was God. And he begins with that, with that famous prologue, and then begins with this uh, description of Jesus' ministry. But then he goes on, he, he, we have uh, his calling of the disciples, and then we have this, this, this miracle at the wedding of Canaan. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we have two back-to-back -back conversations, two very important conversations. One with Nicodemus, Nicodemus who comes at night, he's a Jewish Pharisee, and the other is with this Samaritan woman, a contrast. Nicodemus comes at night, he's a Jew, he's a man, he's a scholar, he's a theologian, he's a Pharisee, he's elite, 
He has high standards. He's well-respected. And he comes, and he comes with a question. But Jesus slices right through that question and says, let's get to the point here. Nicodemus wants to know, are you really a teacher of the law? And Jesus says, let's get to the point. He's telling Nicodemus, he says, you know what? He says, God is doing a new thing. God is inaugurating the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he says, don't you imagine, don't you think for a minute that just because you are a religious elite that you are going to see the kingdom of heaven. If you want to participate in the kingdom, you have to be born from above. That's what he's telling them. And it's funny that Nicodemus comes at night, and we've talked about the themes of night and light, dark and, darkness and lightness in John. You should follow that through. It's a fascinating study. He begins the, the, the book by saying that, that the light came to the light, of, and light who was the life of all men, and, but we love darkness more than light. Well, then this is carries through, and Nicodemus comes at night, and he leaves not making a decision, or at least not now. He's on the horns of a dilemma, and so he kind of backs away and not really making a decision. Well, then the next conversation is just the opposite. The next conversation is in the day. And it's a woman. She's a Samaritan. Bad reputation. The bottom of the social hierarchy. And yet she becomes the first woman preacher in Christian history. Amen. She gets converted. She gets changed. What is it about her? What happened here? We want to look at this story just a little bit more. Jesus upstages the mindset of the Jews. He upstages the mindset of Samaritans. And you know what? He upstages the mindset of our spirituality today. He upstages this whole idea that spirituality is some self-actualization, some fanning the flame of inside, this narcissistic, self-serving spirituality that we see all over us. He upstages that completely and offers something completely different. I divided the story up, and I just put that up there just to see, kind of give you a bird's eye view of where I'm going with this. We, we starts off with the setting, Jesus comes to the Samaritan well, and then scene one, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and then the next scene, beginning in verse 16, we have this Jesus making his point, sort of the climax of this dialogue, and she returns to the village, and then the last scene, Jesus instructs the disciples, and then he abides with the villagers, and we saw that word last, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, Jesus comes to the Samaritan well. He's traveling up to Galilee, and John gives us sort of an explanation of why there's some, there's some dissension or something between John's disciples and his disciples about baptism, and uh, I don't know why. I don't, John sort of explains it, but I don't, know, I don't understand his explanation, frankly. Uh, I'm guessing that maybe Jesus is trying to avoid dissension between the, between the two groups. I don't know. And so, he has to return back to Galilee. And it says he had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria. There are routes that go to Galilee where he could have taken. But why did he have to? He had to because he had a purpose in mind. He was about to take the message to the Samaritans. He had been with the Jews. He's about to take it to the Samaritans. That's the reason he had to go to Samaria. And so he sits down at the well, sits down on the well, probably on the, on the, the donut-shaped caps on the, on the well. He sits down on it and waits there, and sends the, the disciples on to get food. They probably had a bucket. You know, there was a little leather bucket that they rolled up. They probably had some, but he, they took them with them because Jesus had a plan. He was sit there ready to meet whoever would come his way. And so he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's there waiting for whoever might come. So Jesus comes to the Samaritan well, 
and we have surprise number one. I'm going to mention five surprises from this story, okay? Surprise number one, Jesus asked her for a drink. He's sitting there in the heat of the day asking for a drink. Now, she comes at noon, and that alone should tell us something. Uh, maybe mo most of you may, may know the, the background of that, that women would come and get water either in the morning or in the evening to avoid the heat of the day. And they always came with a group because water's heavy. And they would come with their little buckets, they fill their buckets and then pour it in the pots and then carry the pots back to the village and they would help each other lift the pots of water. But she comes alone in the heat of the day. She must have been a really bad woman to be so blatant to come in the middle of the day alone. She was either a social outcast or she was there to meet a traveler. Somebody coming by in the middle of the day to get water. Regardless of the reason, she shouldn't have been there. And she approaches Jesus. And if Jesus would have been obedient to the social taboos of the day, he would have given her about 20 foot space and uh, not talk to her. I mean, we, we think we invented social distancing. Well, they did. <laughs> 20 feet away, is he supposed to be 20 feet away? And he doesn't, he just stays there. And so she approaches anyway and, and, and talks to him. And he is not supposed to talk to women. That is wrong. Uh, the, the Mishnah, was a, which, is a, which is a commentary on the Torah, on the Old Testament, there's this old, old document, and they have this. And talk not much with womankind, how much more of his fellow's wife. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna, or death, or hell. I mean, Jesus' approach to women, the radicalness of his approach for women is beyond description. I mean, he treats women totally different than the society. And he asks her for a drink. He still talks to her. He asks her for a drink. Let me go back here. Let me go back here. And that is really important to me because he goes there not ready to give him the message and tell her how important this message is and how important she needs to listen to him. What's the first thing he says to her? Can you help me? I think Jesus really understands the need to be vulnerable, to be needed, to need someone else. And I think as missionaries, we had to learn this the hard way. We have this idea, and I had this idea, that we're going from a developed country to an underdeveloped country, right? And we have all the answers, we have the solutions, etc. And that just doesn't work. If you want to create a true loving relationship between two people or between two groups of people or between two institutions, it's got to be a mutual need and receive, give and receive relationship. We have to learn how to be served as much as we have to learn how to serve. Yes, the church has to serve, but we also have to get it in our minds that we also need others, that we also have a need. And it's right there in the Bible in black and white that the strength of the gospel is seen through the weakness of the messenger. It's right there. That's where we see the strength of the gospel. 
And Jesus understands that. Jesus understands that real love begins with a mutual giving and taking. Because if it's all giving, then what does it do? It creates pride in the giver and it humiliates the receiver. Just think about the first mission trip, Mark 6. Jesus sent out his disciples with just a staff. No money, no bag, no food, two tunics, sandals, that's it. Why? Because Jesus understood that for that relationship to take place, they have to be on the receiving end. It has to be a mutual give and take. And Jesus says, knows that. He says, give me a break. Give me a break. I, I, need some, I need some help here. And what does he offer her? The second surprise is the gift of God is a person. He says, if, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him for a drink. He says he would give him living water. He would give him, you, a living water. Living water is a metaphor for the Spirit of God, for renewing the Spirit, for renewing us, our, our, our hearts from the very beginning in the Old Testament. It's a very, very common metaphor. In Jeremiah, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Whenever we go anyplace else besides Jesus to satisfy that thirst anywhere else, even if it's good stuff, if we go anywhere else to satisfy that thirst, we're just drinking cleverly disguised mud. That's it. And Jesus says, I am the one with the living water. I am the one with the flowing water. Isaiah 12 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus refers to that again in chapter 7, John chapter 7, that with, out of the wells of salvation you will draw fresh water. And, and what kind of water is he talking about? It's either, in the Bible we talk about the wisdom being water, or we can talk about the spirit being water. Well, I think it's both. That Jesus is offering a revelation of himself, of who God is and who she is. And he's, he's offering what God wants, but he's also saying this, is the, this comes from the, the well of the spring of water that will flow and, and, and the well that will spring up with inside your heart. This is where we find it, he says. This is where you find it. Everything you're looking for, all those spiritualized books that you're reading, all those, those uh, paganism or whatever it is, he says, you turn to me. Everything else is disguised mud. You turn to me for the living water. And she, of course, recognizes the absurdity of this. He says, she says, you know, you don't even have a, you don't even have a, a, a bucket. Where is this flowing water that you're talking about? And then he says, if you've got this magic water, show me, because I could sure use it. It sure saved me from coming to the well every day. And I'm thinking, how often do I do that? How often do I say that same thing, that I'm just looking for the magic water so that I won't have to do the work, so that I won't have to do it? I won't have to do anything about it. I want a religion that will make me feel good I, I want a religion that will make me, that will take away my fear of death. I want a religion that will rescue me from my depression. Uh, I want, a, I want, a, a, I want a, a religion that will reduce crime in the streets and maybe even reduce my taxes. 
And basically, I'm just looking for a product. And how much do we do that? Well, give me that magic water. And Jesus saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer your thirst, your real thirst, your real thirst. And so we come to the climax of the dialogue. Jesus makes his point and returns to the village. She returns to the village. She says, go back, go ask your husband and bring him here. Well, she does leave, but she doesn't just bring back one man. She brings back a whole village. She brings back the whole thing. And I think what we, what we see here is this unfolding of identities, that Jesus is unfolding the identity of himself, but he's also unfolding her own identity. It's a, it's a moment of self-knowledge, of self-discovery, and where she is exposed to who she is and what she is and who she's done and what she's, who she's been with. She says, go get your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. You've had five. And the man you're with now is not one either. And so she changes the subject. She suddenly becomes a theologian and says, which mountain is the true place of worship? And even though she's trying to change the subject, in reality, this is a really deep question. Because when sin is exposed, when our, when our heart's exposed, when our brokenness is exposed, what do we need? We need the mercy seat. We need a sacrifice for an atonement. And so in a sense, she's asking, well, where's the right mercy seat? Is it, is it Mount Gezerim or is it Mount Zion? Because I need an atonement. I need a sacrifice. Which one is it? And so we have surprise number three. The de-Zionization of the tradition. You like that word? De-Zionization? He says, it doesn't matter. It's not in Zion. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not, my, it's not Mount Gezerim. Those places are obsolete. It's not there anymore. It's here. God wants to dwell inside us. It's not just manifesting his, his presence in a place, a geographical place on the map. It's here. This is Christian spirituality. Where is the Shekinah glory? In here. He says these places are obsolete. He says now God has always planned to bring salvation to the world through the Jews, and I'm the climax of this plan. I am the culmination of God's plan here. This is the culmination of the, of the plan of salvation. The source has always been Israel. But this is what distinguishes Christian spirituality. That it's not a matter of fanning the flame. It's a matter of a God who intervenes and rescues. It's a God whose spirit is in our heart and prompts this flowing of living water and where all are welcome, that there are no boundaries. There is no one place that has the Shekinah glory and one place that doesn't. There's no condemnation. Jesus doesn't call everybody to come and stone this woman because she's committed adultery. There's forgiveness, and there's mercy, and there's grace. Surprise number four is the first I am. And he's, the woman says... 
um, tell me, we know that there's this Messiah coming, this Christ. Well, who is it? And unfortunately, we don't see it very well in the English, but this is the first time that Jesus says, Ego I me, I am. The great I am. Now, John has those I am passages all through. I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the shepherd, I am the, I am the, the resurrection and the life. All those things he says, I am. But this is the first time he just says, I am. This person speaking to you, ego I me. That this is God himself that we are dealing with. John has a very high view of the divinity of Christ. He also has a very high view of his humanity. And he says, I am. All the good and truth is now encompassed in this body. In this body is the, is the link of spirit and material, of flesh and glory. I am. I am, he says. And if our souls can just hear that this morning, if you can just hear that, then your soul will be at rest. If you just hear Jesus say, I am, your soul can be at rest. The disciples come back, and they don't dare say a word. They want to ask the woman, what do you want? which is code word for saying, would you like us to get rid of her for you? And they don't ask Jesus. They don't challenge Jesus either. They don't say, why are you talking to him? Because they just assume he must want to be talking to her. But I just imagine there was this awkward atmosphere of rejection in that moment. Because you see, and, and when the way Laurel was reading it, it really kind of comes clear that she sort of slips away in silence. She kind of retreats back. And then Jesus explains, just like there were two kinds of water, there are also two kinds of food. I don't want to deal with that too much detail because there's just too much here, but, but basically the food, the doing the will of God is nourishment, while the water is sort of refreshing and, 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 and meets a longing. But she goes back and preaches to the villagers, and she tells them, first of all, her own story. They probably already knew it. But she goes back and says, he's told me everything about me. He revealed myself to myself. He made me look in the mirror. And now he's offering this. And he did not condemn me. He did not want to stone me. That was amazing. He didn't ostracize me. Could this be the Messiah? So Jesus instructs the disciples, and then he abides with the villagers. They all come back and want to hear what Jesus is saying, and they invite Jesus to stay with them. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the vine and the branches and how it's important how we abide in Jesus. And, and John loves that word. He uses it some like 40 times. Well, here's one of those places where he uses it. He, he asked Jesus to abide with them. And so Jesus did abide with them, and they got, we get surprise number five. The Samaritans were hoping for a prophet, and they got a savior. The Samaritans believed in a Messiah, but they only believed in the Torah. And the only kind of Messiah passage in the Torah is Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses predicts a prophet will come. And so that's what they're waiting for. He's, notice that they say, we expected somebody to come and tell us that she says, we're expecting a Messiah who will come and tell us everything. That's what, they, that's what she was expecting, a prophet. And what they end up with 
is the Savior of the world. The Samaritans knew very well who the Savior of the world was. It was Augustus Caesar. Because Herod, always the great politician, always willing to kiss up to, the, to his bosses, he created this, uh, this big statue in this big temple in Samaria City, in the city of Samaria, that you could see from the port of Caesarea. And it had this big statue of, uh, of, of Augustus Caesar. And he had been deified, he had been called God, and he had been called, guess what? The Savior of the world. And then the last verse of this story, which is so great, which is the climax of the story, they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, now we have heard him because he's abided with us. And we know that this man really is what? The Savior of the world. He's not just a prophet. He's the Savior of the world. Jesus doesn't just make himself known. He makes her known. And I think those two are always interlinked. That this bit of self-discovery of ourselves, of knowing who we are, is linked to knowing who Jesus is. That we have to know who we are first. That he came to the well, a thirsty man, and she meets a thirsty man, she meets a Jew, then she meets a rabbi, and then she meets the Messiah, and then she meets the Christ. At first, she's trying to get the better of this man, and then she sort of, she sort of dislikes the Jew, and then she sort of ridicules the, the, the rabbi, and then she's kind of swept off her feet by this prophet. And then by the end of the story, she is adoring him as the Savior. She is worshiping him as the Savior. She is sort of a stand-in for us. We are eavesdropping on this story, like Laurel said. We're listening in, but she stands in for us. And every step of the way, as Jesus reveals himself, he is also revealing her. And we stand in her place, or she stands in our place, and the whole time we're listening to the story, we are... We are getting to know who Jesus is, the Savior of the world, and we are getting to know us as well. We are looking to us and looking into our heart who we are and how thirsty we are and how much in need of living water we are. I have said this before. We preachers love to complicate the message. <laughs> I, I, maybe, it, maybe it's job security. That if we could just complicate it enough, you know, you'll, you'll keep us on. I don't know. But it is so, so simple. It is so, so simple. You're thirsty. You need a drink. Jesus has the water. And not only is it just individualistic, that water then flows out to the entire village. That's the whole point. It's, it's personal, but it's not individualistic. It's personal, but it's community. It's public. And the simple message is, I'm thirsty. I need a drink. And Jesus is the living water. Abide with him. Invite him to abide with you. That's the answer. That's Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality uniquely speaks to our broken spirituality because Christ uniquely speaks to our broken spirit. That's it. That's how simple this is. We are thirsty. 
And Jesus provides the water. He shows us who we are, and he shows us what God's like. Living water. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this wonderful story that, that we probably know by heart. But Father, it just, it, it, it grabs me every time. We thank you for this woman, whoever she is, who stood in our place and was willing to be vulnerable and was willing to be transparent to show us living water. Amen.